we ended up leaving our house in the end after a couple of years because it was just like this awful sadness there. And on the last night that I was there, I was awake. I woke up, I looked at my bedside table and I had the locket on it. And I saw Tom, he was holding the locket and looking at it. And again, I had these feelings of these words of, I'm here, I'm right next to you, I'm right beside you. He wasn't all hazy or transparent, it wasn't cold. It was like when he was alive and he used to run into my bedroom and I just knew he was there. I woke up out of this sleep and there he was, clear as day, like as if he was alive. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near-death experiences, premonitions, hauntings and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. Welcome to Spirit Sisters, the podcast. I'm your host, Karina Machado. And as ever, I'm so very pleased that you've tuned in today. I hope that wherever you are in the world, and we have listeners all around the world, which is so exciting to me, that you and yours are well and happy despite the challenges that this year has presented us all with. Where I live in Sydney, spring has sprung and I can smell the lovely scent of the freesias that I picked this morning and that are cheering up the desk where I'm working right now. I'm always so grateful for the everyday miracles of nature. Speaking of gratitude and miracles, I'm so honoured to be introducing you to my guest today, the courageous and open-hearted Michelle McLaughlin, a nurse and mother of three from Sydney who shares a very moving story about the afterlife contact she has with her little boy Tom, who was four when he tragically passed away in a road accident in 2014. His loss led to Michelle launching the Little Blue Dinosaur Foundation in honour of her beautiful boy and as a means to help prevent further tragedies of that nature. In our conversation, Michelle talks openly about the profound spiritual experience involving her late grandfather that took place on the morning of Tom's death, about the spirit encounters that Tom himself reported in the months leading up to the accident, and the myriad ways that he offered precious signs of his presence afterward. Notably, this includes the time Michelle woke up and saw Tom by her bedside, looking solid as life. There's also a wonderful story about a dream Tom's big sister Sophie had a couple of months after he passed away, which, as the then seven-year-old told her mum, made her feel good. My hope is that this episode helps to lift your spirits too especially if you too have lost a child and are familiar with the kind of grief that Michelle takes us into in such a raw and authentic way in this conversation. 
Remember, if you need support and you're in Australia, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Ultimately, though, this is a life-affirming story about the bonds of family and the death-defying power of love. It's my pleasure to bring you this conversation with Michelle McLaughlin. Welcome to Spirit Sisters, Michelle. Thanks, Karina. I've really been looking um, so forward to coming onto the show and having a chat with you for quite some time. So it's a real honour to, um, to be with you here today and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you and it's a real honour to have you. And let's begin by saying that today is your grandfather's birthday and that's an amazing synchronicity that we only worked out, well, you, you told me about last night and I was just thrilled to hear it. Because obviously your grandfather, as we'll go on to share, features prominently in your story. Yes, he does. And uh, it is his birthday today. And I also think that's uh, some sort of heavenly alignment, if you will. I think that's a, a sign to me. Um, and I think it's really special. Me too. Well, thank you to your grandfather. So, Michelle, when we first spoke over the phone last year, you told me that you'd always had a vague kind of belief in the spirit world, but it wasn't until your beautiful little boy, Tom, passed away in an accident in 2014 that you really began to have these kinds of experiences and they were very powerful. Now, on the morning of the day that Tom died, you had a vision of your grandfather who we've just mentioned. Could you please begin by sharing that story? Yes, so sadly, we did lose our little boy Tom on the 6th of January, 2014, when we were on a family holiday at McMaster's Beach, which is on the central coast of New South Wales. It's probably about uh, an hour and a half drive from where I live, um, depending on the traffic, of course. It's a beautiful location, um, lovely beaches and bushland, and, and we chose it uh, for that reason, my husband's a very keen surfer and my children all enjoy the water and the beach. And um, so Tom was four at the time of his accident. It was a pedestrian accident. And I'll, I'll go into that a little bit later about those, those circumstances. I have three children, um, Sophie, who was seven at the time, Hugh, who just turned one on the 19th of December on the 2013, and Tom, who was um, yeah four at the time. He was so gorgeous and just so precious and had a real zest for life. You know, I, I just found that Hugh, uh, sorry, that Tom was very, you know, he had a personality that people were attracted to. He had this exotic, um, beautiful smile that lit up a room. And we were really um, proud of him. And uh, I guess his loss has deeply impacted the family and, and us. Uh, so just getting on to, to the uh, part where um, I had this vision, um, it sort of began just the night before we arrived at this holiday house together um, in the early evening and then uh, I was actually watching the movie The Great Gatsby at the time. I kept falling asleep 
watching it at home and I'd bought it for my husband for Christmas. So I took it with me and I was watching it. And ironically, right in, in the spot in the movie, there's a part where one of the central characters gets hit by a car and killed. And Tom had been asleep in, in the bedroom behind uh, where I was in the lounge room with his sister, Sophie. And he did actually get up. I didn't realise he was behind me. And, and he said, you know, he was upset by, he'd seen that that accident and he said oh mummy this is a scary movie I don't like it and I said no you shouldn't be watching that let's turn it off and I'll put you back to bed and he didn't want to go back into to bed by himself he wanted to come with me so I took him into um, the bedroom where I was staying and, and David was asleep and he was asleep in his little portable cot and we sort of hugged and, and we went off to sleep and the next morning I had this experience or dream or visitation dream. I guess I've learnt about it later in more depth. I, I didn't pay a huge amount of attention to it at the time. When it happened, I just went with it. So I felt like this very heavy depression of a person sitting next to me on the bed, like they'd walked in, sat down on this, this bed that I was in with Tom and uh, the others had gone. They'd gone for a beach walk. We were still asleep. And um, then I saw my grandfather who had died when I was four. He had a massive heart attack at home when he was sleeping. Um, we were having an afternoon nap, in fact, and, and I was with him. And um, I saw him on a very long uh, wooden bench. It just seemed to go on forever. And he was in the sort of... I, can't, I don't know, Roman, I'd call them Romanesque type white robes. And there were people either side of him. I couldn't make out their faces, but I could see his very clearly. And he was sort of side on. I could see his side on profile and he was chatting. You know, he looked quite happy. And around him was all, it was as if we were just in the Australian bushland somewhere. And uh, it didn't sort of have... Um, anything particularly special it just looked like a typical Australian bush setting oddly enough and I kept trying to sort of get his attention I remember in in that that dream I was having but I I just couldn't get it it was like there was a force field or there was something stopping me getting his attention uh, I just wanted to say hello look it's it's me uh, but I couldn't. I was unsuccessful. And uh, and then the dream ended and I sort of woke up thinking, oh, that was bizarre. I thought about it um, and, I, and I felt quite strongly at the time that it really was him, but I couldn't understand why on, on that morning. You know, I just sort of got on with the day then and I put it I put it to one side and, and I actually didn't think about it again for, for about another six months. Mm. Michelle, I remember you telling me in one of our first conversations that you had a sense of wondering, who is he waiting for? Yes. Now, did you think that at the time when you woke up or was that six months later when the no, dream came back No, at the time here? I had this sense of waiting, this word in my head almost like, it was like an interpretation of that scene, if, if you will, yeah. um, a waiting scene, you know, that the people were all lined up and waiting, God knows for what. I really didn't put two and two together. It was just 
it was this vivid scene and uh, and it was over fairly quickly as well. It, it, it didn't sort of feel like I was lying there for hours. Um, it was sort of flashes, you know? Yeah. How I'd describe it. And so what was your grandfather's name and what part, do you remember him? Because you were four years yes. old like Tom when, when, he, when your granddad passed away. Yeah, well, he was quite a big, solid um, man. He was a businessman. Uh, he had a very sort of stressful job. He, he worked in earth moving back, I suppose, in the 60s and 70s when Sydney was really developing a lot. And um, he, he sort of lived out in the Hills District, so he would have had an enormous commute to and from work all the time. And my grandmother had four children, so she was sort of really managing the whole entire household which was quite a lot of work I would imagine and he would be gone off every day and he was this sort of uh, you know businessman who liked uh, to smoke cigars and have a whiskey and go for a Chinese uh, a meal. Had a very loud sort of commanding presence. If he didn't like something or he didn't uh, like someone you would certainly know about it but with me he was always sort of you know come on sit down and he used to call me Shelley Joe in fact that's what I called myself uh, because I couldn't say Michelle Jones which was my then name and so it was just Shelley Joe that was my nickname and we used to sort of we used to go on car drives together and um, you know I guess we talked a lot and he had he had these old teledexes, you know, they were little sort of uh, plasticky uh, rectangular things with letters on the outside and you used to zip oh. it up and press the button and you would come across whoever's name. And I was fascinated with those things and I, I pulled them apart once and <laughs> I put them under the bed and anyone else, I suppose, they would have been in enormous trouble with him. Uh, and he said, who did this? And I, I do recall saying to him, look, I really think it was Minnie Mouse. He knew <laughs> darn well that it was me, but he just sort of laughed it off and, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he thought it was quite amusing. Um, and we also used to sit and listen to records together, you know, like Neil Diamond and Elvis Presley and Charlie Pride and Engelbert Humperdinck and all that. And uh, I just remember sometimes I would get up and do a bit of dancing and, yeah, we just, we enjoyed each other's company. But he was a very sick man. He was a diabetic and he had cardiac failure and and back in the 70s the mid 70s he died in 76 there was no such thing as a coronary artery bypass heart transplants there was none of that you just you basically had a terminal disease if you if you had uh, cardiac uh, issues that were severe Wow, Michelle, you have so many uh, detailed memories of your grandfather. That's amazing. I don't remember too much from when I was four, so I'm quite impressed with that. So you woke up on this day and you'd had this experience, but as you say, you didn't really make too much of it at the time. No, I didn't feel alarmed or worried by it. Perhaps in hindsight, I should have been. But the actual experience, it wasn't terrifying, you know? It wasn't like I saw something awful ha happen. You know, it wasn't like a premonition as such, but it kind of was. I think it was more of a message, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that this thing, it was going to happen. And, and somehow it did spin back to me six months later 
you know, where I, I really put it together. It, it was like a, a light bulb went on. It was a light bulb moment. Mm-hmm. And it was a moment when I was really, really struggling. I was deeply depressed. Nothing anybody said or did helped. I used to just sort of roll into the next day. Um, mm-hmm. It was a really difficult period. And I used to think, you know, what's the point? Like, how am I going to cope with this for the rest of my life? How am I going to bring up two children through this? You know, obviously the trauma of it could impact Hugh and Sophie certainly had, you know, a huge amount of anxiety and trauma and distress because of it. So there were lots of worries going on in my head at the time. Mm. And that memory of that dream came back to me. And I just went, oh, he he was there, you know, to wait for Tom. And Tom went over here and he's had somebody to be there waiting for him and looking after him when I no longer can and his father no longer can can look yes. after him. Yes. So that okay. was comforting and it did help sort of pull my anxiety down quite a bit. Yes. So in a sense, the fact that you really only put the pieces together six months later was the, the right time for you. That's when you needed it. And I, we'll, we'll talk more about that experience and how it came back to you as a light bulb moment a little bit further on. But can you please share with us, Michelle, what, what happened that day? And it strikes me too that you and Tom were by yourselves that morning, weren't you? And you mm. slept together the night before, is that right? So you yeah, had, you'd well, had we'd time. also slept, yeah. <laughs> slept together and played musical beds, essentially. But he often came to me in the night. He would walk up the hallway and I would just know and wake up out of a deep sleep. I would know he was there and I'd reach over and lift him over into the bed. I had this awareness. I, I would just wake up when he would appear. I yeah. knew and yeah, we were always, he, we enjoyed each other's company, Tom and I. He was always telling me how much he loved me and how oh. nice I looked every day. And, you know, can we go on a walk together? And I just want to hold your hand, mummy. And he was always very affectionate to me. You know, he would basically want to sit on top of me all day if he could. Uh, very cuddly. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. So, so that morning, obviously, we got there late to the holiday house the night, the night before. So there wasn't much time to really orientate. You know, we just got in and unpacked our bags and put the telly on and, you know, just sort of surveyed inside the, the house and talked about what we'd do the next day, which we decided uh, we would go uh, on, a, on a walk down to the beach Uh, And we were expecting David's mother and father to come up um, the next afternoon, you know, around three o'clock. They were going to stay for a couple of days with us. So um, the children were excited about that. Unfortunately, it was a really, really hot day. And I had to really keep the children inside till it cooled down. I mean, they, they wanted to go down to the beach. They were excited. Uh, Tom had got a little boogie board for Christmas from Santa and he was really itching to use it. So there was a lot of um, excitement and build up to this this beach 
uh, afternoon that we were going to have and grandparents arriving. So the day moved on. I actually did take Tom out the front of the property and, and for a little sort of walk around this sort of street where we were staying. And we did see children playing. There were some playing cricket in the middle of the road. There were some kicking a ball from one side to the other and others scootering around. Those holiday hamlets are idyllic. You know, they do take you back very much to your childhood. The roads look different. They don't have line markings. They don't have curb and gutters. They sort of blend seamlessly to the grass verge, the council grass verge, very easily. And they're quite narrow, you know, so probably it would have been Tom's first time in an environment like that. And I guess you don't see sort of think to point out the differences. You're watching and you're thinking and you're having thoughts, but I probably wasn't as alarmed as I would be at home if there were children playing on the street. I probably would have said to them, guys, get off the road, you know, but I, I didn't, you know, you're in a holiday location essentially. And you, I guess, Tom was watching and you don't know what his little mind was thinking. Is this what you do here? This is okay. The kids are having fun and you don't, you don't really know. So there was that. And then so as the day moved on, we, we, we had an early dinner. Uh, Tom, uh, Sophie and David and his parents gathered at the front and I was sort of changing Hugh into swim gear, into a swim nappy. I'd just given him a little snack so he wouldn't cry or be uncomfortable down at the beach. And um, the next thing I knew, David and Sophie were running to the house, screaming and yelling. My first thoughts were, oh, my goodness, something's happened to, you know, one of the grandparents. You know, they were early 80s then, and I thought, right, you know, and I came running out to the most horrific sight of, of Tom, who had been hit by a car. He had been calm and standing on the grassy verge and just taken two slow steps. And it was enough to put him in, in you know, danger uh, on this skinny little roadway. There was lots of shrubbery around and obstructions. So the driver obviously didn't see him and... There was no time to break and the speed limit being 50 kilometres per hour, I know now that 55% of people will die if they're hit at that speed as opposed to 40 kilometres per hour where 25% of people will die. And being a small child and head height to the front of a big, heavy four-wheel drive, it was instant and uh, and you know, terrible head injury and, and horrific injuries, highly traumatic for everybody involved. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of pandemonium. I just remember just screaming in utter panic and uh, horror at what I was seeing because when I looked at Tom, I could see my, my training is um, being a registered nurse and I, I'd had 20 plus years, 25 years probably of experience, including university. I knew by the injuries, I knew by the colour of him, he had gone, though we worked on him uh, until the ambulance arrived and, and, and so on. It was really terrible. And, uh, and yeah, I just sort of, after that, the ambulance people put the defibrillator on him and just confirmed what I already knew. 
that he'd gone. And I just remember sitting with him for quite some time until all these other investigators turned up as they have to at these fatal accidents and uh, just sitting there thinking, my God, I cannot believe this. I cannot actually believe this has happened in a microsecond. And the thing that was incredibly hard to cope with and I just kept going over it and over it in my head was that Tom was a cautious boy. You know, the first thing he said when we arrived to that house, there was a big step up from like a mudroom entry where you left all your surf gear and stuff and stepped up into the kitchen. The first thing he said when he walked in was, Mum, there's a problem here. You could drop off this step and hit his head. That was the first observation. Mm -hmm. uh, at home, you know, he'd see a neighbour's cat that used to be very fond of lying in the middle of the road and warming up in the sun and he'd say, Queenie, get off the road, you'll, you'll be killed. You're thinking, my God, like how can this happen? But children are unpredictable, they get excited. There was a lot of um, building excitement that day to use this surfboard from Santa. New environment, it looked very different. Um, the perfect storm, really. And at Christmas time, the kids are a bit more tired. You know, there's been parties, there's been late nights, they're out of their routine and there's tiredness too. So you, you just add it all up and uh, recipe for a disaster. And it really, really was. So, Michelle, how did you and David get through those, those first days? And how, yes, how did you put one foot in front of the other? Well, it was, I just was in shock. I just walked around like a zombie. I couldn't even turn a kettle on. I, every sound, every noise, um, you know, we were both the same. We were just in deep, deep shock. I, I just couldn't believe it, although I'd seen it with my own eyes. You know, when I'd been in the ambulance with David transporting Tom to hospital, I, you know, we stayed with him, we held on, on to him for as long as we could. And men and women really grieve very differently. So we were on a different pathway. David's way of coping was, you know, he's got a small business, he works very hard, he puts in a lot of hours. I mean, that's why we'd been so happy to be on that family holiday to have some time with him and then you know to have that happen you, you can't believe it but he did have to go back to work and he did that within a couple of weeks and he sort of felt he needed some structure I don't know how well he concentrated there but you know he did his best I mean there were times when I was just so angry about it and trying to understand how the hell does this happen to a cautious child, uh, to a good family who are hypervigilant. I mean, I, I was like one of those classic helicopter mothers, you know, I was onto everything. Could they trip? Could they hurt their head here? You know, I, you know, safety was my number one thing. And I guess, you know, in that week after, you know, we had journalists descend on our house, which I didn't expect. You know, they, they asked the neighbours whether I let my children ever play on the street. Oh, that, my gosh. That would be something I would absolutely 
never ever do or think of. You know, they'd say, pay tribute to your son. All sorts of things, discussions went on everywhere. Things that I just didn't expect. Women sitting around talking about this incident. Oh, how, how would you feel? And I'm thinking, I don't know these people. Mm. Um, it, you know, I, I then became quite scared that, you know, there wasn't much happening in the news. Would they all turn up to Tom's funeral, which we were trying to organise? You know, we were fortunate we had a lovely lady uh, with white ladies who was just an absolute angel and really helped me a lot. And I did, and I have sort of remained friendly with her, though I haven't talked to her in recent times. Um, she she was a, an amazing carer. But yeah, David and I took us quite a long time to get out of the trenches. We were very conscious not to be upset in front of the children. I read research about babies looking at their mum's face. They need to see smiling, you know, and this happiness Mm. for them to be developing appropriately. I mean, it terrified me because I was just crying all the time. That's what I spent my time doing, wiping tears away and just in shock for many months. People would come and visit, try to um, help, but it's a very uncomfortable thing, child death. And uh, and you could just see how uncomfortable they were. And, you know, it was a matter of weeks and those visits stopped. And I had an epiphany of, you know, this is mine to deal with and, and ours individually. We try to be supportive of one another, but we really suddenly it sunk in quite deeply how massive it was going to be in terms of a journey and trying to recover. I mean, you hear the words, you know, you get get to healing. And I used to think, how ridiculous. You know, older folk, you know, in our family saying, you know, unhelpful things like, uh, oh, he's in God's garden now. Well, thanks very much, but I don't want him to be there. I want him to be in his own garden. Um, And, you know, you just have to pull your socks up and roll your sleeves up and just get on with it and be strong. And you think, easy for you to say. And uh, platitudes of, you know, you'll get through it and you're strong. No, I wasn't strong at the time. I had to develop that. I had to find my own ways of coping. And it was really, really hard, really hard. It's unfathomable what you've been through, Michelle. And I I so appreciate you sharing this difficult story with us today. I want to ask you, so another thing you'd mentioned in our correspondence, I think, leading up to this interview, you said that in the weeks leading up to the accident, Tom himself had shared with you something out of the ordinary. He said he saw a man walking through the wall, a man with white hair, I think. Can you tell us about that? Yes, he did. He said that a number of times in the lead up, sort of October, November, December, things started to happen in our house. It didn't worry me, didn't, you know, I wasn't concerning me, but he said so repetitively that one day I said to him, what man are you talking about? Just so I can be clear and I can understand, like it's daddy, mummy, Sophie and Hugh here. And he said, no, it's not. Um, There's a man with white hair. He walks through the bedroom wall and he tickles my toes and he says, I know your mum. You know, 
and he's friendly. I said, well, I'm glad he's friendly and that you, you feel okay about it. He said, well, who can that man be, mum? You know, who can you know that's that old? Well, in fact, my grandfather wasn't that old. He was 58 when he died, but he did have white hair. He went grey at about 21. So I, I started putting it together. I thought, oh, that's... What, what, why are we suddenly getting this? And another afternoon, we were having our little afternoon nap together, Tom and I, and Hugh was in his cot before we had to go down and collect Sophie from school. And I woke up with this incredibly strong smell of cigar smoke, as though someone had gone and then exhaled it right under my nose. I woke up with such a fright, and again, I don't know, it's that sort of weird dream state where you're sort of aware of things, but you are asleep. I dived out of the bed, I ran around, I checked all the doors and windows and everything was locked up because I thought someone was in the house and then it hit me like a train <laughs> again. Oh, that's my grandfather. He really is in this house. It sort of validated what Tom was saying. So, wow. You know, it it was a validation Mm -hmm. and not that I didn't believe Tom because from his description of it and he was only four, I did, you know, I didn't dismiss it as ridiculous at all. I did, but then I got that additional adult validation. It's quite amazing. Yeah, because it began, as you say, months early, months in advance of the accident. And Tom, who was clearly such a bright little button, he mm. he told you this over and over. So it wasn't just a one-off either. So no. what do you make of it in retrospect? In retrospect, I think it was my grandfather sort of possibly preparing us, giving me memories to think back on because his visits had stopped after Tom died. I think perhaps there's only, you know, these window opportunities they get, they get sent back to sort of help guide. Um, It was a loving thing, I think, in hindsight for me to have um, and to know that, you know, I was desperately worrying about Tom all the time, even though he died, which some people again might think is crazy. But I just kept thinking, where, where is he? Is he safe? And, and these sort of questions. So I had that comfort, I suppose, that he was with a, uh, a relative who had also really loved me too. And I'm sure, uh, you know, Tom is part of me. So Tom would have been, you know, very much loved and being, you know, well cared for. It's very beautiful. And I just love the idea that, our family members, even very distant ones that we might not have had many years with together in the flesh, in the physical, they find ways to be with us and to let us know they're there and caring. And, you know, your grandfather's played such an important role here for you. He, he's given you that comfort to let you know that Tom's with him and he's okay. It's just Really, when nothing else could give me comfort, yeah. you know. People would buy me these grief books, you know, how to cope with it. I'd read about a page and then I'd throw it because I would think, this is insanity. What they're trying to do is say, you must separate. You know, you must let your loved one go. 
Paul, how do you let someone go that you loved and adored, who was with you by your side constantly, who was special, you know, who was your child? It is the most craziest concept and I don't believe in it. I, I think it's, you know, the attachment um, is important that it does stay. It's really important because love doesn't, you know, it never dies like you say, Karina, and, and with your book. It is permanent whether the person is here or, you know, in, in the next life or in mm. heaven or whatever people believe. It's, uh, it's to me, healing, if you like, comes through attachment and keeping it and maintaining it. I'm not going to let uh, anyone or any book tell me otherwise. And I love what you said earlier too, that the only thing that gave you comfort was this knowledge of the afterlife connection, that your grandfather still lives on and Tom lives on and they're together. And the, this idea is what gave you comfort when nothing else could, Michelle, as you said. So on that topic of afterlife experiences, some unusual things began to happen almost immediately after the accident. You mentioned a few things. So I've written them down here, but of course you know them. So there'd be Tom's ninja toys going off in the middle of the night. There'd be footsteps. Tell us about the kettle turning on and off, all of this kind of stuff. You know, it gives you the sense that they're there, that they're aware of your feelings, that perhaps they're even, they can see you. How do they know? Uh, because these events happen right when you need it. So our kettle, you know, turned on a couple of times, actually. Once for my husband, but that's the only experience he's had. And he feels, he wishes he had more of the things that I've experienced of course. You know, another night uh, I heard the footsteps come up, up the hallway. David was away. We'd had some guests. I was saying goodnight to them. And I heard these little footsteps clear as a bell as if there was a little child ran up the hallway. I turned around. There was nobody there. I thought, oh, that little Sophie, you know, she's got up out of bed after I've told her to stay in bed. And I I thought it was Sophie had got up out of bed. She was in my room and I opened the door and I said to her, but they sounded as though they were coming from behind me in the hallway, not from, from the other room coming to the door, if you will. And she said, Mummy, I didn't get up. I don't know what you're talking about. I've been lying in the bed. I'm waiting for you. So, and of course, he was a baby in a cot and really couldn't get out of bed, could he? So, so there was, there was that. I also had this big portrait, a photograph portrait of Tom on the fridge that was taken at his kindergarten. And I would go at any time of the day in front of the refrigerator, look at that portrait of him. And in the middle of his forehead, this purple circle would appear. And sometimes I could actually see like an eye, like an eye in it. And I felt that was him again saying, I'm right here, you know, stop despairing so much because I, I really did spend my life in tears and I didn't sleep much. You know, I just, I felt so um, churned up inside and full of turmoil and regret and horror some nights that I, I just couldn't. And I'd wander around half the night 
we also had this lampshade in the lounge room and I would often say to David, look at it. It looked like someone had sketched on it, you know, like in a charcoal pen sketch. I could see Tom's face and I could see a big T next to it. And it would sort of just work its way around the lamp. His toys, um, he loved Ninja Turtles. And again, not so much in the night. I think he was conscious not to <laughs> sort of scare us too much. But um, in the day, you know, I had them. He used to put them on the end of his bed and I sort of just left them there. And one day I heard this, they're only activated by movement. You've got to shake them and they make all sorts of ninja noises. And um, I'm walking all around the house thinking, what is that awful monotone sound? And we didn't have a window open or anything. Um, no wind or could have activated it. But it was this Ninja Turtle absolutely roaring as someone had taken it and, and, and lifted it up. And after Tom died, another thing I saw in his bedroom, above his bed, I looked up and, and it was like his face like a little floating cloud almost, just of the head, like a little, I don't know how to describe it, but I saw him, it was like a spirit up, up on the, and then it was gone. So things happened to me that sort of validated it. And, and other things, I don't know what this phenomenon is, but I have done a little Google on it that, you know, when, when I sometimes look at carpet, and, you know, that's as recent as a day ago when I'm in the gym uh, doing a, a walk on a treadmill, I can see like little characters appearing, like as if a child's drawing them. You know, and I get that feeling beforehand of, you know, this really strong sense that he is there with me. And, and all day at home, I get that feeling, mm -hmm. um, not in a creepy way. Uh, I'm never afraid or alarmed by it. It's just a, a warm, strong sense of his presence with me. And it's comforting, obviously. Well, it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think that I'm clinically insane. Um, I have actually had this experience for a long time. I remember when Tom died and, you know, we spent a fair few hours over a couple of days with him at the, the funeral home. And, you know, I, I held his hand and we, we took a lot of his special things to him. But the whole time in my mind, I was talking to him. Mm. You know, I was obviously upset and crying, but I was having conversations with him and saying, for God's sake, you know, if there's a way you and I can do it, we, uh, you know, we're so much, we were like so alike out of the three children. He was probably the one most alike to me. We can do it. And, uh, and I remember sort of getting into the car after, after that and there was a mobile phone, like a toy one, in the car. And whether, I don't know, why or how exactly but as we drove off I, this mobile phone started saying goodbye 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 like that oh i've just me. got goosebumps that's just amazing whether it was movement but it just seemed 
odd, you know, given what I'd just been doing and saying, you know, in my mind to him. Yes. And it's a phone. It's communicating with him. And it's a phone. Yeah. I mean, it's a little plastic toy (laughs) car's phone and it was in the the back of the car um, at the time. And when that happened... Did you look at did you and David look at each other and think oh or or, or was it still well, it registered yeah. to me yeah. but I don't know with David David was really in another world of course um yes. you know there it was just like what do we do next oh. what you know we were just like lost you know from a to b and back again and trying to keep breathing yeah. but I noticed the things they were significant to me mostly, I suppose, because I have an interest in it and I do sort of feel that uh, affinity. And, Michelle, was there also a beautiful story? I, I have written something in my notes about a memorial locket. Yes. Well, I always sort of, I do wear it a lot. So it has on the back, it has this enameling, you know, with the lorikeets because Tom loved these and they always used to land in our yard, these colourful, bright lorikeets, and he wanted me to feed them seed and and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I think of him as a bird. You know, that those birds appear a lot wherever I go. They seem to find me, oddly enough. I know there are a lot of them, but... Again, they're always buzzing around somewhere. And it has this sapphire on the front, which blue was his favourite colour. And that channel there has got some of his ashes. We also keep them at home because we didn't know where we'd go or what we'd do. We didn't feel comfortable leaving him. You know, I looked at the children's areas in the cemetery. The burial was out because he was scared of the dark. I was not going to do that. And, the, you know, the cremation was more also about how we could get him back and he could still be with our family and be in his home and enjoy, I guess, the peace of that. And we, we felt secure that that was the right decision at the time. And so... The locket, we ended up leaving our house in the end after a couple of years because even though we had these big plans to renovate it and all the DA approved, it was just like this awful sadness there and, you know, it was really intense. So we decided to move and we did. And I remember on the last night that I was there, I was awake I woke up I looked at my bedside table and I had the locket on it and I saw Tom dressed in his clothing that you know he he was um you know prepared in and and you know I guess um cremated in and he was holding the locket and looking at it and again I had these feelings of these words of I'm here I'm right next to you I'm right beside you he wasn't all hazy or transparent it wasn't cold it uh, there was no uh, sort of sense that I would associate with him it was like when he was alive and he used to run into my bedroom and I just knew he was there I woke up out of this sleep and there he was clear as day like as if he was alive and then I I literally blinked and he was gone what an experience it was. I told my husband and he said, 
are you sure you weren't asleep? I said I was wide awake. It was like when he ran up the hallway and I just know he was there. My eyes were open. And he was holding the, the locket. locket. He, he'd picked it yeah. up off the bedside table. He, he was, was holding it in his oh. hands, looking down, you know, in the palm of his hands, looking at this locket. And, uh, you know, the, having the locket also the, is, is when I do go away anywhere, I can take him with me. It, you know, it's got the, the poem from E.E. E. Cummings in that locket, you know, about I carry your heart you know, in my heart, you know, we're never apart. We're always, you know, together. Whatever you do, I'm doing that sort of thing. How beautiful. So it, I'm not familiar with that poem, so I'm going. I'm just jotting it down so I can look it up. I know E. Cummings' work, it's, it's wonderful, but, yeah, that yeah, poem. I carry your heart. It's, it's very significant to me because that's mm. what I do mm. uh, with him. I, I, you know, I carry him every day with me. It's a very beautiful locket and maybe you could share a photo of it with us for the listeners who can't see it like I can right now, if that's all right with you, Michelle. Sure, it is. Yeah, I'd love to do that. So what do you think your spiritual beliefs, if any, were at the time of Tom's death and did they help to sustain you? Well, my background is that I've been uh, a you know, baptised and raised as a Catholic. So I guess in that sense, I do believe in God and heaven. But I'm also acutely aware that Catholics don't really uh, believe in psychics and, and, you know, these sorts of experiences we're talking about today. And that's a, a cute point of difference with me. I have had experiences that are as, you know, so real and they have happened. They are valid as I sit here breathing and nobody can tell me any different. I think, you know, it helps to have hope and faith because if you really are despairing, you, you need those things. You need to, to cling on to those things we all need to hope for a better day um, in, in these circumstances of experiencing the traumatic death of our young child. I sort of saw it as, well, there's two roads, isn't there? Which one are you going to take? The choice is always back to you. Um, and I did things that I thought would be beneficial for helping me as a mother and a wife uh, and a friend uh, to carry on. And um, we can't stop the clock. I wanted to, but we can't. And uh, we, we do have to um, be our best selves while we're uh, on, on this earth. And I, I also think old age is a privilege that not everybody actually gets to see through till the end. So, you know, you need to really, I guess I've felt uh, I value life and I really love my family and I want to, I guess, create things that are, um, that are good and positive, have a positive mindset. I did read a lot of those little 
quote books, you know, to give me a thought in my head initially to distract me from the the replay of the horror Mm. that I was going through. And I would just focus in on that quote and what did it mean and try and, and lift my head back into something positive because Tom, you know, he, he always wanted me to be happy. You know, if I was ever sad and, or, you know, something was up, he, uh, he would sort of comfort me and say, come on, mum, you know, let's go and do something else. Forget about that. So what a precious little boy. It sounds like he was so beyond his years in terms of, you know, wisdom. (laughs) And, you know, <laughs> caring, not... kind of an expansive way of thinking. Yes, I, I think he was a bit of an old soul. And uh, I, I think that, um, you know, we were so lucky to have him, even though it was just a short time. I wouldn't change that. What has been your experience of the afterlife or the spirit world prior to Tom's passing? Had you had experiences of note? Well, I think from a young age, I and I guess that would be after my grandfather died, I, again, I was always aware of this sense of I wasn't alone, like as if the wind would go up the back of you, you know, and I'd run up the steps, you know, I'd get this really intense feeling uh, all the time when I was young and um, that spirits were around. Um, I wasn't quite sure who they were, but I definitely felt presences around me and I I used to sort of think about it but it didn't really scare me I, I used to chat a lot to my grandmothers about it because uh, they had opinions on that and they both used to tell me stories how they'd felt something someone sit on their bed or they'd seen someone at the end of their bed and who they thought it was although they couldn't quite see, they had a feeling that, you know, it was, it was their mum in one case. And they used to tell me, we'd sort of laugh it off and, and they'd say, look, you know, don't fear the dead. It's the living. We need to be uh, cautious of and aware of, you know, they're they're just here to let us know they're around and, and help help us feel a bit safe so that they're just people who who know us and it's nothing to be afraid of mm, that's a lovely and foundation they gave you yeah it is and it didn't sort of alleviate any any worries that I had and then later when I was nursing of course many patients died on my shift and I would always try to care for them just like I would for a family member with a lot of respect, I would often sort of say a little prayer, you know, for them to, when they died to sort of send them on their way. And when both my grandmothers died, one in particular, you know, experience I had, you know, I noticed when she was neither here nor there, it was sort of a lot of muttering and loud talking that she was doing. I don't know who she was talking to, but I felt that she was caught between the two worlds and uh that you know I was here on this side and I was holding a hand and saying look it's me and and it's going to be all right but I also thought through my experience with Tom this grandmother died after Tom uh, and she was the wife of my grandfather who we've been talking about and she used to say to me look I haven't got long to go I just know it 
And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go and find Tom and I will look after him. She used to look after me a lot as a child. So, and she was, you know, quite convinced that we go to heaven too. There was no ifs, buts or maybes. That's where she was going. And she felt that she'd be reunited with people. And even when I gave the speech at her funeral, the priest remarked on that, that, you know, there's this resurrection and, you know, Lillian knew that. And, uh, you know, as evidenced by what her granddaughter is saying here today. Uh, and the other grandmother, well, she passed away at the hospital that I worked at. And she died fairly quickly over a weekend. She, uh, we thought she had pneumonia, but it turned out that she actually had terminal lung cancer. And uh, she'd also had a really debilitating stroke and been in a nursing home for 18 months prior so it was quite quick and I wasn't really I don't know expecting it to happen as fast as it did but um, I remember being in in this private room with her and um, my father was there and he wasn't coping terribly well with it and I just felt I said to him look why don't you go and make a copy I just felt that compulsion to say that to him and off he went and did that and uh, when he left she she died you know right there and then and i was holding a hand and i was sort of saying look you know it's okay to go to go now so that was also mm. quite interesting too it is interesting and it echoes a lot of accounts that i've read you know about those moments surrounding the passing of a person very sacred moments and often there is a story just like the one you've described where you know, it almost seems like they choose the moment, you know, whether it's, yeah, mm. whether it's to, to alleviate the suffering of, you know, in, in your grandma's case, her son, or for whatever reason, they choose the moment. Mm. So that's sort of my experience. And of course, it's intensified um, after Tom died, who, who would probably be my most special connection, you know, and, uh, and I can understand that it's intensified probably because of the relationship we had. Yes, and you you said, yeah, you, you told me about that. You mentioned that obviously Tom was deeply beloved by everyone in the family, but you and he shared a particularly close bond. And talk a little bit, Michelle, about this bond of love and how it somehow seems to have been the engine of the communication that still continues with you beyond the veil. Well, I just... You know, with Tom, so many things happened in our time together, in our, our short four and a bit years together. And just that, you know, he was like a bit of an old soul and he was this perfect little companion that I had. He was very affectionate and loving and he, he really had a close bond with his sister Sophie and they shared you know, a room and they used to get up to sort of shenanigans reading stories under covers when I'd said it was lights out and this sort of thing. And then when Hugh arrived, that was a whole new level of joy for uh, Tom because he had really wanted a brother and he was very, very doting on him. You know, wherever we went in the community, you know, in a lift or something, he'd be introducing, oh, this is my, my baby brother, Hugh, and this is my mum. Uh, Michelle and I'm so proud of my baby um, that yeah he he just, just adored yeah he did 
And, you know, he never sort of wanted to be separate from me. And, and one sort of little story was, I remember one time where we were driving home in the car and I said to them, oh, geez, I feel so sick in my tummy. I don't feel good. And I ran inside and I shut the bathroom door. And of course, I had this terrible gastro happen. And, and he just couldn't stand to be behind the door. And I kept saying, look, don't come in because I don't want you to get sick. But he wouldn't have a bar of it. It didn't seem to register that it was, you know, something that, you know, he should be worrying about. He was more concerned about me and how I was feeling. And I think he's still like that, even though he's not here. He's still concerned with how I'm feeling and making sure that, you know, I, I keep coping and I keep, you know, going in, into the next day. And it's certainly... A thing, a philosophy with me was, you know, take it one day at a time. That was another one I read. And that is so true because if you look back in the past, it's so overwhelming. Uh, the memories, you want to hang on to them. You don't want this awful future that's happened to, to occur and you've got no choice in it. You've got to keep living through it. So those future memories you know, you think you're going to make, they're also painful because your child essentially misses out, is missing out. You're acutely aware of that all the time. Whenever there's a birthday or a special event, uh, they're not in the flesh and involved in it. So it's, it's like, I guess with Tom, you know, I feel like he's always there on my shoulder. You know, it's a, it's a strength that I don't know where it came from, but... Uh, it's there and I believe strongly that it is really connected to him and the relationship that we that we had and recently uh, last year I was in hospital I had to have an abdominal surgery and I was recovering you know and I was resting on on the bed and I felt I did actually feel like a cool breeze shoot past and then again in one of those sort of half awake half asleep states I felt you know, this tiny little hand cupping my cheek just for a moment. How lovely. That is so lovely. You mentioned your uh, daughter, Sophie, who shared a room with Tom. Now, mm. she was uh, seven and a half when Tom died and she had an astonishingly beautiful dream. Now, it was one of those dreams that's so much more than a dream. You can call it a visitation. Could you please tell us about it? So... Sophie did, in fact, have a dream that she recounted to me, um, you know, probably a couple of months after Tom had died. So it was all still quite fresh. And um, it was a very vivid dream that she described. And she said that um, a very large being, an angel, that's what she, she felt it was, very tall, very beautiful, had come down through the ceiling. She said the ceiling just sort of opened up and there was a hole. And then there was this enormous creature or angel next to her. And it didn't actually speak, but again, like the communication came through in Sophie's thoughts and it, it was come with me. And I said, were you scared? Were you worried? And she said, no, not at all. I was really quite enthusiastic, well, it's not the word she used at seven, but I was really keen to see what it was about. And she said, um, so the next thing she knew, she was up flying 
and she was looking down over this amazing place. It had lots of vibrant colour, green trees with gold fruit of all the things. She said golden fruits, waterfalls, rainbows, butterflies, everything beautiful that you can ever imagine and see. And she said, and then suddenly we, we landed in, it looked like a, like a town, you know, it was a, in a street and Tom was out the front and there were restaurants, there were houses. He was out the front of this restaurant and he sort of smiled and he was laughing because she'd lost a tooth. And he took her inside to the restaurant and in the restaurant at the table was my grandmother who died first and my grandfather the one we've been discussing today and another really dear friend of ours who passed away from motor neurone disease and she was really kind to me and she used to call me another daughter that she had and they were there and the description from Sophie was things that she couldn't have known so my grandmother was one who liked to, when she was younger, get very dressed up and makeup and heels and, you know, really um, glamorous outfits. Uh, you know, I can see her in the 40s and 50s, the way she used to dress and she, she had black hair. So she was in that form of herself in her, her heyday and she was sitting and she was eating spaghetti bolognese. That's significant to me because every Saturday as a child between about the ages of 14 and, and then even when I got older, she used to cook uh, me the most amazing spaghetti bolognese from herbs from her garden. Oh, wow. Sophie would never have known that. Like I've never had cause to tell her, right? So she's eating the spaghetti bolognese all done up beautifully as, as I've seen pictures of her. My grandfather, he was eating a baked dinner, a roast dinner, which was his favourite go-to meal. Um, so that was unbelievable. She couldn't have known that. They're not conversations you have. And then my friend, um, Nolene, she was eating Thai food. And she sort of introduced me to that. And I can remember when we were teenagers and her daughter... Emma uh, making these curries in their kitchen and uh, she you know was a very vibrant lady and and laughing and you know very joyful person and she was there too so Sophie sat down and she's I said what meal was Tom eating she said uh, chicken nuggets that were dinosaurs oh she, yeah and she couldn't know that because I actually did buy boxes of dinosaur chicken nuggets, but he really did love them. I mean, they were not the healthiest food in the world, but I did on occasion, you know, give a bit of latitude with the kids if they wanted a lolly. You know, I wasn't one of those hard and fast parents who said, no, you can't have it because um, it can go the other way and that's all they want. So he really loved those dinosaur nuggets. And, yeah, she, she said it was this happy experience, joyful and lots of hugs. And she felt really, really good. Uh, and then she came back and she was in a bed. What did you think when, or what did you feel when Sophie told you well, that? Again, I didn't not believe her or think it was fanciful. I said, wow, 
that's an amazing dream and I'm really happy that you had it. You know, how do you, how do you feel? And she said, I feel really good. Like, I feel better. So it was a comforting thing for her and um, it was truly amazing and I do believe her that that happened just like the experiences I've had. And it seems like those those facts about the meals and the very specific mm. meals that each person loved. I have no idea about it. Yeah. I've discussed it with her. It's almost yeah. like they're planted there as validation for you. When I heard the story back, yeah, because <laughs> I couldn't not believe it. I mean, it was just so unreal. So, so Sophie felt better. So it helped her. It sounds like that helped her in some measure in her grief over the loss of her brother. Yes. Well, she's never gotten over it. Doesn't really open up or talk about it that much. But I do know that, you know, at the time she really missed him and she wished it hadn't happened and she wanted him back desperately. And I remember, you know, we had terrible trouble with her getting off to sleep. I mean, we all had issues with with trying to relax and get sleep. And I remember saying to her one night in frustration, look, this can't go on. You, you know, this is like, we're talking a year later, you you know, you've got to get to sleep. We're going to school. You've got to learn. It must be hard to learn when you're tired. And she said, mummy, how would you like it if daddy had been the one who died? And every night I said to you, get to bed, go to your room. And daddy's not there. Well, Tom's not there in my room and I don't like it. So she gave me that little analogy and I stopped saying that as much to her and, uh, and it gave me insight, you know, into how she was feeling. Um, I tried to do my best for her. I still do with all the things you need to support, especially going on to be a teenager. It's just the worst experience you could wish to happen and she was there on the day of that accident she was out the front and she did witness it so it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to live with your other little boy Hugh he was three and a half when he reported an experience as well a a dream I think of Tom yes yeah a dream Uh, we'd left the uh, the old former house probably when he was three and uh, he really was attached to the house. He, he didn't really want to go. Um, he still says that to this day. I wish I was back in our other house with our yard and our pool and my cubby house. Uh, where we live now, it's, it's a beautiful spot. It's got nice, you know, water views, which, again, I've read research that looking at water is supposed to be calming and helpful. But it is up, as my son says, on a rock. <laughs> it's up on a rock and um, it's got a smaller backyards and things. So he told me that this dream that he went back to the old house in, in the dream. In fact, we were all there. We were all sitting in the lounge room and he said, and Tom was so happy to see us and so um, excited. And he was running around hugging and um, he was really hugging me and super, super excited. He had a red jumper on. I don't quite know what the significance of the red jumper is I don't remember a red jumper, mm. but um, I don't know, it might mean love, mm. something like that, if you can interpret that. 
or want to interpret that. But yeah. the thing for Hugh was, he he said that he had a wonderful time in this dream because the brothers were actually able to play together and, you know, he got to experience, you know, sitting and playing a game and running around and playing chasings like these games. And um, that made him feel really good. I mean, Hugh has no memory being one when this accident mm. took Tom from us. And he's got a lot of questions and I've answered them openly, calmly, you know, as truthfully as I can for a child that age. Mm. But the things he wants to know is, you know, what did he like? Where did, what things did you, we do together? How much did, you know, he love me? When I was little, you know, when I tell him, oh, he constantly kissed and hugged you, sometimes I'd have to say, look, the baby has to sleep. <laughs> Get up the baby for a while, you know, but it was like he was putting all his energy into this little baby. Who knows, you know, he, he might have had some sort of knowing that, you know, time was precious. Don't know. But uh, Hugh, again, he's benefited from that. And uh, he often says to me at night time, you know, when we read a story, he'll say, do you think Tom can hear us, Mum, reading this story? Because Tom loved picture books and reading. He would always be asking me to read. And when he was really tiny and you have that really wretched hour, you know, around five to seven o'clock where they sometimes don't want to go to bed, I would be saying, look, Tom, I'm sorry, I can't read you the book. and I would feel regret you know on that memory and thinking but then how could you read a book with a screaming baby <laughs> in a practical terms exactly ridiculous to even entertain it but my heart did feel some regret that I I couldn't often read every single story every night and and David as you know and I've mentioned he worked very hard and long hours so it was me at Fort McLaughlin uh every night <laughs> And you, so you mentioned that Tom loved reading and you've actually created a beautiful picture book called Tom's Holiday. Now, this is um, tied in with your foundation that you established, Little Blue Dinosaur. Tell us about the foundation and the meaning of the name as well. Yeah. So Little Blue Dinosaur came about because of what happened, the terrible grief that I felt, and, and it was a sort of a way, I guess, to cope with it because our immediate thoughts in that aftermath for the few months was, God, we don't want this to happen to another another parent. Look how easily this has occurred to us. Young children, you know, they're, they're just so, I guess, unpredictable and they, they see something and, and off they go. They don't sort of have the wherewithal. And, and I've learnt lots of things about their, their cognitive, physical and perceptual uh, limitations. And that goes through till they're 10 years of age. Doing this work and setting up a foundation has also taught me things that, you know, I wasn't aware of completely. I didn't realise children didn't have peripheral vision fully developed and optic nerves and, and that their hearing in terms of actually pinpointing sound, it's difficult for them. You know, as an adult, we can hear a car coming and we can usually say it's coming on my left or it's coming on my right, even before we see it. But young children can't make that, uh, that conclusion. Um, they also can't judge speed and distance. 
to keep themselves safe. I mean, that's a, a higher thinking assessment skill that we use and take for granted as adults. But, you know, they see the car coming and they're trying to work out how long, you know, how quick do I have to be to get over? And, um, and one staggering statistic too was that uh, the most common cause of death of children aged 1 to 14 years is land transport accidents or road trauma. And I know the Australian um, Road Safety Foundation, they went a bit further with that and did some more research and, and funded that. And, and people actually thought that drowning and, and illnesses like um, childhood cancers were the top things that killed children. So, you know, we've worked really hard to try and bring awareness to it. We, we work with local governments and also state governments. I've been able to, um, to get grant funding from the state government to now bring what we have is a signage awareness campaign and it's key road safety messaging and it's put up at holiday time because I recognise that there was a gap there. We talk about school zones and that safety. Now, that's very important. They're going to school you know, every day, bar a quarter of the year, you know, that, that they're on they're on school yeah. holidays. And where are they? Well, they're in the community. They're in recreational zones like beach hamlets and uh, rural areas. And um, we need to, you know, make them aware about how the roads look different in those places. So, you know, part of that work was writing a book, which I finished last year. It's a children's book called Tom's Holiday. Um, it's a beautiful, bright coloured book and it's very informative. It does have a section at the back of it for adults and carers because I think we need to make people, you know, acutely aware about young children having these deficits, I'll use that word, until they're 10 years of age. They cannot keep themselves safe. It is really important that we are holding their hand at all times near driveways and, and roadways because they, they can be flighty and, uh, you know, they can see something on the other side of the road, a puppy, a butterfly, a friend, and boom, they're over there. I see things around my community every day that make my hair stand on end. And I believe that partly because parents aren't given the information, you know, when, when you get a new baby. That's where it should come. Uh, and I work, I, I work as much as I can, raising awareness with with MPs and and government. Uh, but I am one individual. Uh, I volunteer all my time into it, and um, yeah, we are working with sixty three local government areas that put up the signs at holiday times. And, you know, that's across four Australian states. I do all the media work with that too because it's not just about giving signs. It's about a story coming from me, a real-time story, and that has power and impact on people to have more awareness about their behaviour and be more educated so they're not sitting in my shoes. Yes, there's such power in the personal story, Michelle, and... It's so wonderful what you're doing, this work to spread these, this awareness. I mean, those statistics that you shared just then, I didn't know. I didn't know about, you know, the leading cause of death for children from zero to 14. And I 
didn't know about the cognitive deficit in children either. So that's all, you know, really interesting and it's really great, the work that you're doing. Thank you, Michelle. You know, it's been, you know, helpful for me. And the Tom's Holiday book is our story of that trip we went on to McMaster's Beach, although, you know, obviously the place isn't named. Um, It's a beachside holiday, uh, but it has the ending that we had hoped for. We make it to the beach. We are holding hands. We are aware of the roadway and not to go on it and how it looks different. And it talks you through all that in the book. Yeah, it's uh, very beautiful and it's very poignant as you're reading it as an adult. It's very poignant, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's special to me and... Certainly, I've learnt the journey of book writing. It's it's difficult, um, and also children's books do cost about ten thousand dollars just to to do one, let alone get copies done. And uh, you know, I had a, a serendipitous moment where an organisation phoned me one day and just said, "Look, you know, we've seen." the work you're doing and how can we help? Is there a project we can help with? And I instantly thought of the book. Now, that money dropped out of the sky because I sure as hell didn't have it to do it. It was just a dream that I had and something I wanted to do for Tom in his memory and to prevent these terrible tragedies occurring and raise that awareness through personal experience. Your your path of navigating the grief of Tom's death, how has that been helped perhaps or, or impacted by the work that you're doing with Little Blue Dinosaur? Well, I think it has helped. There's probably been times where it hasn't, where I've probably added a lot of additional stress onto myself because we're a small not-for-profit. Uh, funding's always an issue, like how do you keep going? If I had to, um, I guess, end Little Blue Dinosaur tomorrow, that would be another grieving process for me because, I, you know, that's Tom. I believe that's his work here on Earth. I'm just the vessel, you know, that goes about doing it. But it came from somewhere. Um, you don't get those ideas out of nowhere. It's been a creative way to manage grief. You know, I'm never, I guess, fully out of the water with that. You sometimes feel you're slipping and you have to look after yourself. I mean, with the coronavirus, I've had to curb some of my activities that I would normally do of engagement because how can we have launches? How can we have gatherings? I mean, councils can't commit to that. The, 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 the corona climate changes from day to day, what yeah. you can and can't do. So it's, it's been, well, I have focused a little bit more on myself in, I think with the grief, you know, I put on a lot of weight, 30 kilos. I think a lot of that was to do with um, having higher cortisol levels. You know, they've done all those sorts of studies too on animals um, where that sort of really intense stress, your cortisol's up and you just put on weight. Uh, You know, I had early menopause as a consequence of the shock. Again, hormone issues. What does that do? Puts on weight. And, you know, because I'm a person who is loved, and lucky to be loved by lots of people, well, people express their love with food. So, you know, we got a lot of food uh, deliveries and a lot of sweet treats and love that way. And 
because I I couldn't really cope with shopping or cooking or trying to plan things for a long time. You know, we ate a lot of that food and takeaway. So I've been able to take stock for once in six and a half years and I've managed to get out and exercise every day and have a sensible diet. And I have managed to lose 15 kilos. And I think, I guess if it hadn't have been for the coronavirus, I'd probably still be uh, struggling and, and overweight and feeling tired and awful. So there are blessings to be had in that, mm. as hard as it is. And I wish it wasn't happening, but here we are in it. Yep. And I know from my experience of being in situations that are tough, you've just got to buckle down and you've got to do what, you know, is right. And I think people are really making all efforts and attempts to do that. And uh, we pray for a, a vaccine. Uh, to come and and I think that's going to be the thing that helps us through it. Yes, well, one day at a time, as you said earlier, Michelle. So just before we stop talking about little blue dinosaur, is that was that a drawing of Tom's that he? Yes. Yeah. What's what's the story behind the logo? So Tom loved dinosaurs, like most boys do, and he loved the colour blue, and he developed this signature drawing. I've got them on our website, actually, Evolution of a Dinosaur. He started drawing them when he was about two, and it gradually evolved into what is our our logo um, for Little Blue Dinosaur. That is Tom's drawing, his original drawing. And... um, I found loads of those. After he died, they just used to pop up everywhere. They'd fall out of books. They'd be under the bed. You know, I'd clean up and I'd find one on a table shoved under something. And I felt that was some sort of message from him all the time to me. That was another thing that sort of inspired me and it gave the foundation a name. And, you know, we went through a coronial inquest as well and you know to point out these issues with with holiday hamlets and how they look different in in you know the best interests of of the public and in in the name of prevention um we went through all that so that was another dimension of stress but what we were figuring out as we went through that process it essentially became you know the work of little blue dinosaur i guess as i'm talking to you and i hear you talk about tom's holiday book i just wish that there's some Big shop publisher listening who will say, right, I'm going to go in and publish that book internationally and take that pressure off you, Michelle, because self-publishing can be a very expensive venture. And the book is full colour and it's, um, it's very beautifully done. It's very professional. The drawings in it, you know, my text really was the story, the part I did in it. But Sophie, she's a very good artist and she came up with all the concepts, even though they've been done by another artist. She came up with all the concept for each page. I couldn't have done it really without her. But, yeah, my wish is, you know, to get this book out to every school in Australia, every council library in a how do I do that as one individual I don't know it's an absolute challenge there's restrictions I guess with with funding it but I think it's a book that could be read to children at preschool age and right up to 10 you know that age we're talking about before they go on school holidays and, and a parent even to have one, or grandparents to have them as well. They're often looking after children and to, to understand all this stuff and just knowing how, 
you know, that hand-holding is life-saving. It, it is just that difference, that point of difference of securing a child and, you know, whenever you're near a road or a driveway, we just can't trust that they won't become excited and, you know, that's the nature of them really. And the best we can do is hold their hand and be educated about child pedestrian safety and um, drum it into them, you know, talk to them about it. You're seeing things like when I described, I was on the roads up there at McMaster's and noticing those things with the children playing in the street. You know, you see something, tell your child, explain it. You never know what they're thinking. So it's about talking to them and having these road safety conversations when you're, when you're out and about. I know I do that every day with my children and particularly Hugh is very attuned to it and always has been very, very good at complying with my wishes because he knew that if he didn't do it, that was it. We were going home. There was no ifs, buts or maybes. It would just end and we would go back home to the backyard if he didn't do as I said. So you do have to be quite strict and, and you know, aware and, and enforce that and make sure children understand, I mean, to a level. Ultimately, we're responsible for their supervision and, and that's active supervision. That's not letting your child run you know, a couple of metres ahead of you, which I quite often see while you're punching out a message on your your mobile phone, that's not active supervision. You know, it could just be that moment and your world will change forever and there is absolutely no coming back from it. So just my message is really to people to please be vigilant and just teach your kids and your grandchildren and tell them things that I've talked about today. Well, thank you so much for that, Michelle. And as you said, there is such power in the personal story. And just to to bring that circle round again of the spiritual stories, I know that you love listening to stories such as the ones we share on Spirit Sisters. Tell us about what that does for you to listen to those kinds of stories. Well, I feel like I'm part of a little community And I absolutely love listening to your guests and the amazing stories. I mean, I find it really quite exciting and exhilarating to listen to. And um, I often do that at nighttime when I can't sleep, you know, and I can really concentrate on the podcast and what they're talking about. But it's quite emotional for me too. You know, you've had guests on there and and the stories they recount really make me cry, Mm. you know, suffering and things they've experienced as as a child or another guest who she'd actually been hit by a car. Yes, that's Leonie, Um, yes. Yes, Leonie and getting her insights and, and that was comforting and helpful. And I think if you go through terrible, tumultuous grief, you've got to find what works for you. This is interesting to me, even before, uh, you know, we lost Tom. I've always, you know, enjoyed spiritual, psychic things, experiences people have. I remember as a child watching great mysteries of the world. (laughs) I think you and I are spirit sisters. I loved that show too. (laughs) I loved it. Um, And I have a couple of beautiful friends who are really with me and support me on all these experiences that I've had and and you know they don't they don't devalue what I say and 
say, look, you're nuts. They say, that's beautiful. I, w- I wish I could have that experience too. And that's, you know, that's support and kindness right there. That is beautiful to have a friend like that. Now, just as we end, we come to the end of our conversation, something you said to me early on prior to today's conversation, Michelle, was that you have no fear of death. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you arrived at that? Well, Karina, the fact is we're all dying. You know, we might not have an acute illness right now that's going to take us out next week, but we're on the journey. You know, we will die. All living things die. Um, And in our lifetime, if we live long enough, we experience grief and loss. It might be not as, you know, first degree as what I've had, but, you know, you might lose someone within your family sphere that's really important to you and, and it will really rock you and, and make you, you quite sad. I, you know, my beliefs about death is that I'm not afraid because I've had these experiences through my grandfather, through Tom on a, on a you know, daily basis, if I can say that, um, when I tune into it. And I just know there's something beyond here. I know that it's going to be a joyful reunion. It's something I look forward to. Um, And that's not being morbid. That is just stating a fact, you know, that um, I absolutely believe that there's something beyond here and that we, we shouldn't be afraid of that at whatever time that comes in your life. We are going to meet our loved ones again and um, and I think that's really wonderful. I think that's something to not be feared. It's something to, you know, just tuck it away. It happens eventually, but when it does happen, we are not alone. We're supported from the reality we're in, you know, with our friends and our family if we're going through that. And then on the other side, there it is again waiting right there. So you said that you, if you tune in, you can, you can communicate with Tom pretty much every day. Is there any story that you haven't shared with us today about a connection with him that you'd like to, to leave us with? Well, I think I've probably covered most of it, but I might actually just throw it back on you <laughs> and get your thoughts on one particular sure. thing. After Tom's funeral, I don't think I've slept for days And I was lying on his bed and trying to sort of, I don't know, get a real strong feeling of him, I guess. It it felt solid in that room. And I had this audible sort of sensation, like someone whispering in my ear, but it was in a language that I'd, I'd never heard of. It, I wondered if it was some sort of angelic type of language I don't know if anyone else out there has ever had an experience like that but it was sort of it was soothing and calming and I was after many days actually able to go to sleep after that happened I don't think it was Tom himself but it was some it was some sort of connection and and again someone or something trying to bring me comfort in the absolute depths of as despair as low as you could be. 
Well, I agree with your analysis there, Michelle. And I think that from what you've mentioned, you are somebody who's innately tuned in and have been since, since childhood. But the experience of losing Tom, I, I get a sense that it kind of blew you open to, to, the, rep, to the invisible realm and that's something that I've read about before and I've interviewed people. And in Spirit Sisters, my first book, I covered sort of all the different ways that a psychic gift can really kind of burst to the fore. And grief was one of the, one of the ways that for some women, it is that portal. So, so, yes, it sounds like in that moment you were particularly open and a comforting voice came for you. Now, whether that was somebody in your distant family tree or whether it was you know just a a comforting spirit guide somebody in your soul family who knows but but the effect the proof is in the pudding type thing you know you were able to get to sleep and that's truly amazing you know if we think Mm. about it because you hadn't been able to no i was high as a kite on adrenaline and hadn't slept in days you know and just paced around and I, I just could not stop. I could not relax. I, I was just absolutely overwhelmed and overloaded. Um, and there was, I, I was beside myself. And just in those moments, I don't know what that language was. It was not like, an, like a foreign language, right? So it wasn't like an earthly language, not like a foreign language. It was a bizarre um, unusual language. I'd never heard of it. I mean, is, is this how angels uh, speak? I, I don't know. That's one for the listeners. Yes. Uh, and, maybe further, and maybe further research on our part. Yes. Well, it's been an absolute delight to speak with you today, Michelle. Thank you so much. You, you're just such a beautiful, warm presence, and I'm sure that you've blessed our audience today. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with before we sign off? Well, look, if you're suffering grief, I would say to you the best thing I did uh, for myself was also connect with people who were in the same situation, you know, particularly if they'd lost a child. And I've actually made a number of really nice uh, friends sort of online and and locally as well Um, and I felt what they told me you know I could actually trust what they were saying because whilst everyone was so well-meaning and kind to me I came to the conclusion that I couldn't get through it I had to hear from somebody else their experience and how they felt over time I mean it is time that helps, uh, but it's also you. You've got to help. You've got to help yourself. You're on the ship, you know. There's people around, but the waves keep crashing over, and it's up to you to steer it and find positive ways to steer it and get help and support is number one. Well, thank you so much, and that's a lovely way to finish our conversation because bringing it back to that very powerful experience of the personal story being shared and the impact that that can have. So for you, that was obviously a factor in, in helping you to continue to put one foot in front of the other. So, and thank you for all the work you're doing with the foundation. We'll have links and things 
So if people want to contact you, Michelle, and if they want to purchase the book, is there a way that they can do that? Well, we're actually launching it officially, uh, sort of the, the week of National Road Safety Week, which is the 9th to the 13th of November. It's normally in May. So technically it should have been launched, but COVID's prevented that. If people want to buy the book, they can, you know, message me through the Little Blue Dinosaur Facebook uh, or they can email me at michelle at littlebluedinosaur.org and I can get them a, a, a copy to them. The idea is obviously with the, with the National Road Safety Week that we launch it on our website and it will be able to be purchased through that way. Okay, that's great. So I've noted all of that down and yes, we'll, I'm sure that our listeners will be keen to get in touch with you and find out about the beautiful book, Tom's Holiday. Thank you for introducing us to beautiful Tom and the rest of your family and for sharing your story so candidly and so openly and authentically. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been my absolute pleasure and I've enjoyed every minute. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters, the podcast, based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback, so please message me through my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story. Thank you.